morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Vaughan, and I've got the great privilege this morning of opening God's Word with you. Uh, as we start, I want us to think about a couple of images. Dorothy clicking her heels together and finding herself back in Kansas. Captain America enjoying his dance with Peggy Carter. And perhaps most movingly, especially for people of my generation, that thumbs up as the Terminator slowly sinks into molten metal. <laughs> what do these images have in common? They're, they're the ending, the conclusion of the story, where it finishes. And it's important as we come to actually consider endings. What's going on as a story comes to the end? What are we being left with in these final moments? Because while it's deeply moving, that thumbs up is not actually the end of Terminator 2. The final images of that movie is of a road and a movement because it's trying to capture the theme of the movie, which is actually about this changing of the future, the ability to control our fate. And so as we come to the end of Luke's goth story about Jesus, I want us to think carefully about endings what Luke is wanting us to take away from this story. Because this is a story. Yes, it's a true story. It is history. But Luke is writing the story of Jesus. He's selected the things that he is telling us. He hasn't tried to record every single thing Jesus has done. I mean, as the author of John's Gospel tells us, that would take more books than there are in the world to contain. And so as we come to these final verses, we're coming to the culmination of a story of taken 24 chapters. Yes, it's continuing on what we heard last week, but it's the end of what Luke has been telling us since chapter 1. So it's important, firstly, for us to remember why he wrote this. As Peter reminded us last week, Luke wrote to provide certainty for Theophilus, to whom he writes this gospel, but also beyond Theophilus, all those who read it, to be able to take it away so as we come to the finish, let's think about that. Because we think perhaps that, that sometimes that the story of Jesus ends at the resurrection. But this story doesn't finish there, does it? As Emma read for us just before, it actually ends with the disciples gathered in the temple praising God. So let's come together and look at these final verses of Luke's gospel. Put them into their context and understand what is Luke wanting us to take away and understand. So we pick up with the disciples still gathered together. It's literally moments from where we finished the reading last week. Uh, last week they were gathered together. Cleopas and the other disciple with him have returned to Jerusalem after seeing Jesus on the road. And, and they've come and, and the eleven and those with them are assembled together. All saying it's true, the Lord is risen. And not only that, he's appeared to Simon. So... In the last 24 hours, this is what's happened for these people gathered together. The women have gone to the tomb and they found it empty. Peter has then run to the tomb to check things out and again found it empty. But also denoting the grave cloth set to one side. Cleopas and the other disciple have met Jesus on the road. They didn't recognize him until their eyes were opened. And as soon as they did, he was gone. And at that point, they've rushed back to Jerusalem where they hear now that Jesus has appeared to Peter. So that's where we are. And then at verse 36, while they were still talking about this, literally right at that moment, suddenly Jesus is among them. It's something quite simple, isn't it, that statement? 
Jesus himself stood among them. While they're talking about him, there he is. And he is the first to speak. Peace be with you. Do you think he anticipates the reaction that his presence will bring? Because despite what they've been talking about, their discussion around uh, Jesus' appearances, it will quickly become clear they're not actually ready for it. They're not, still not actually sure what is going on. Look there in verse 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. They're not actually ready for this appearance of Jesus. They're not sure where they are. They're not sure who he is and what's going on. And I think, you know, it's again easy often when we read these things to go, come on, why don't you get the picture? But let's feel a little bit of sympathy here for the disciples. Just a couple of days ago, they had seen him crucified nailed to a cross. They had seen his dead body taken from that cross and buried in a tomb. And yes, he's appeared to some of them, but look back at that appearance to Cleopas and the other disciple. They don't recognize him at first, and the moment they recognize him, he disappears. So when they think they see a ghost, what are they doing but trying to put Jesus into the categories that they already have? They're trying to understand what's going on, So they become startled, and that startlement turns to fear. They can accept that he's there, but they don't understand the nature of his resurrection. And so Jesus begins to provide them with that understanding, with some certainty about what is going on. They don't expect him to be fully back the way he is. So Jesus begins to offer them proof. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He invites them to look first, but look specifically at his hands and his feet. And what would they have seen there? Well, they would have seen the cruel reminders of what had happened to him just days before on the cross, where the nails had been driven in because Jesus had suffered that most cruel and degrading of Roman executions. So the one standing before them now is that same person, is the same person who was nailed to that cross. But he doesn't invite them just to look at him, but also to touch, to clear up that he is not an insubstantial ghost. He can be touched. He says to them, ghosts do not have flesh and bones as you see I have. They can see the marks. This is Jesus who died on the cross, but he now stands before them, flesh and blood. Remember again why Luke writes his gospel for his readers to have certainty and he's showing us here how the disciples themselves got their certainty about Jesus. And and as I read this, this invitation to look and touch, I was actually reminded of the opening of John's first letter. When John, writing to the church, 
writes this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Heard, seen and touched. This is the one that they proclaim and know. This is the same person who died on the cross. Jesus wanted them to know it and Luke wants his readers to know it. And then notice the reaction of the disciples. They were startled and frightened. But now, they still don't believe it because of joy and amazement. So even though they now accept that that this is really him, but they're worried that it's too good to be true. That he could actually be with them again. Is this some sort of wish fulfillment? And so I think then it's interesting that Jesus does something completely ordinary. Something he would have done with them so many times before. He asks for something to eat. They give him fish and he eats it before them. Again, something a ghost can't do. But also something that he had done with them time and time again. To help remind them that it is him really before them. We see here emphasised the physical reality of the risen Jesus. That he is truly there, flesh and blood. The one who was crucified and the one who stands before them is the same person. And then he helps them understand what is going on. Last week when Jesus joined the disciples on the road to Emmaus... And Peter pointed out to us how they couldn't see him at first, but also they couldn't understand what had happened on the cross. And so Jesus spoke to them in verse 25 and said, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Here he doesn't offer them quite the same level of rebuke, but he's still doing the same thing in pulling them to try and understand that what is going on and what has happened is what needed to happen. That the Old Testament teaching has been pointing to him. That there is a promise there. In verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Firstly, this is what I told you while I was still with you. It's reminders of the, that before he died, Jesus told them what was going to happen. In chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. In chapter 9, later on, in verse 44 and 45, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not grasp what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And in chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Jesus had told them what would happen. 
He told them not only that it would happen, but that it was part of the plan. That this is why he had come, to fulfill what had been written in the prophets. But also note those references in the second two of those those, uh, pieces, that the meaning was hidden from them. They couldn't grasp or understand it. As Pete explained to us last week, we need God's help to understand. Similar to the experience of the disciples on the road to Emmaus last week, where they need to have their eyes open to see Jesus, the disciples here needed to have their minds open to understand the Scriptures. And note that that understanding of the Scriptures is because those Scriptures are about Jesus. That he came to fulfill what is written. That what happened to him was in accordance with God's plan. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And note that it's not just the prophets, but also the law and the Psalms. All of the Old Testament points towards Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. The things that he'd been telling them that they didn't understand and now he makes that clear by opening their minds in verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins we preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus opens their minds so they can actually understand. And if we skip forward into Acts and see some of the sermons there, we begin to see the understanding and how the disciples are able to pull the Old Testament in to illuminate who Jesus is. But they could not grasp that without God's help. But Jesus is not only helping them understand the context of what had happened, his death and his resurrection, but he's also pointing them forward to what will happen. Because it's not the end of the story that Jesus died and rose again. His story is continuing. And that story continues with a call. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. This also is part of God's plan, that through Jesus he will call all people. It's possible now because Jesus has died and risen again. He took upon himself the consequences of sin. Through that he opened up the way for people to come back to God. Through repentance, what is repentance but turning away from what you have done, but more importantly turning towards God and doing that through what Jesus has done. And those who will repent will find forgiveness for sins because the barrier is removed. And Jesus tells the disciples a couple of things, that it will go out to all nations. Again, if you skip forward to Acts, it's where you begin to see that story happen. But also, we are part of that legacy. We are among the nations. This story is our story too. Starting in Jerusalem, the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins has been preached. It's been preached 
for almost 2,000 years is still being preached today and will continue to be proclaimed until Christ comes again. And who is it that proclaims it? Well, it is these disciples. They will be his witnesses. Because they are the ones who have seen him, touched him, heard him. But also, we have that witness testimony here in this gospel. We think back to Luke chapter 1. In verses 1 to 4, Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What Luke is doing is gathering together these eyewitness testimonies that he has investigated. He's recording what has been handed down. It's important to understand that rightly. This transmission of stories is sometimes compared to oral tradition, where stories are told and retold and learnt and passed on, generation after generation. And I think there is some comparison because these stories are being learned and taught to others. But the great difference is these stories are actually being written down while those first eyewitnesses are still alive. In fact, it's most likely that Luke writes it down so that that testimony would not be lost when those eyewitnesses die. So that Theophilus can know and have certainty that what he believes is true. Even if those eyewitnesses are not there anymore. So the disciples are witnesses to Jesus, the ones who will carry the message out to Jerusalem. Yet through this record, they witness to us too, through the Gospels. How we still know their names. Cleopas, who was mentioned earlier in this chapter, we have his story about how he met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. How he was taught, didn't recognize him, and then had his eyes opened. Luke records this so that Theophilus might have certainty, might have the witness's testimony. But it also serves that we today can continue to have that testimony. Why? So we can have certainty, so that we can know the truth of this story. And so people can continue to repent for the forgiveness of sins. To come in and be part of that. And the disciples will not do that by themselves. Jesus says he will send them what is promised, the clothing of power from on high. The coming of the Spirit. Again, that will be seen more in Acts. But note here that Jesus says that this will come to them. They are not going to be left alone. And it's an important note because as we come to these final verses, Jesus then moves to not be with them physically present. And so these verses, that this promise here is that they will not be alone. That even when Jesus ascends, he will continue to be with them through the Spirit. And so we turn to verses 50 to 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. 
And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is why the disciples will be witnesses. Because Jesus is ascending to the Father's side. And so he leaves his disciples, clothes them with power to take on that task of calling and witness, of witnessing to him and calling people to repentance and forgiveness of sins. But this verse is actually also a vindication. Back at Jesus' trial, when he uh, is before the uh, elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they are questioning him about whether he is the Messiah, one of the things Jesus says to them in verse 69 is, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of mighty God. They all asked, are you the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And that's what then progresses them, to take him to Pilate, to see him executed. And yet now he is actually taken up to the Father's right hand where he said he would be. It's the end of his earthly ministry, but the heavenly reign of Jesus goes on. And in his heavenly reign, he clothed the disciples with power so that they could be his witnesses. But now, Luke doesn't end with that story. He'll pick that up in Acts, but here... He records a couple of things that the disciples do. And the first of those is that they worship Jesus, which for us may not seem strange at all. After all, it's what we're gathered here to do together, isn't it? Each Sunday we come and worship him. But it's significant because these are monotheistic Jews. Jesus was put to death because the teachers, the elders... And, uh, and the high priests could not bear to think of him associating himself with God. And yet the disciples now worship Jesus. It shows us that they now truly understand who he is. That their minds have been opened to see that he is not just the Messiah, but God himself. That it is God who came, who bore the punishment for sins, taking it upon himself to open the way for people to be able to repent and find forgiveness of sins. They rightly recognize him. And then they return to Jerusalem in joy. And where before their joy meant that they could not be sure that this was real, now their joy comes from that knowledge of who Jesus is, from knowing that he is alive. And they return to Jerusalem, where Jesus had said earlier in this chapter, that their witness mission was to start, where the preaching is to begin. Luke leaves us locating them there, but not just in Jerusalem, specifically in the temple, where they praise God. At the end of the gospel, Luke is on one level returning us to the beginning again. At the start of the gospel, uh, Luke introduces to Zechariah a priest who, while he is on service in the temple, receives an unexpected message to find himself part of God's promise. And now at the end of the gospel, we return to the temple where the disciples stay continually, waiting for what Jesus had promised, and they are praising God. That final response 
it suggests to us that Luke is encouraging us that this is the proper response to this gospel. That what we read about Jesus should lead to this praise. Let us reflect on what we've just looked at. Jesus has risen, truly, physically and bodily, in accordance with Scripture, with God's will and plan. And he has ascended into heaven where he reigns at God's right hand. This story has not ended in defeat. Has not ended with the cross. The Lord is raised to life again. He reigns on high. But also this story leads onwards. To a call to people starting at Jerusalem and then to all the nations. To repent and find forgiveness of sins. The story of Jesus continues and we are invited into that story to find forgiveness and to praise God. We can have the certainty that Luke writes to Theophilus about. We can know that Jesus lived, died and rose. In repentance we can find forgiveness of sins. And we can know that Jesus reigns forever in heaven. God be praised indeed. I'm going to pray. Our Lord and God, we give you praise for you are glorious, mighty and holy. We praise you for your goodness and mercy that you have displayed in your Son. We praise you for the wonder of your plan that you acted when we could not. And we praise you, Lord, that you continue to call people to yourself. Amen.